Chapter 90 of The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexander Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Epilogue, Part 1 Four years after the scene we have just described, two horsemen, well mounted, traverse Blois early in the morning, for the purpose of arranging a hawking party, the king had arranged to make in that uneven plain the Loire divides in two, which borders on the one side Meung, on the other Amboise. These were the keeper of the king's harriers and the master of the falcons, personages greatly respected in the time of Louis Thirteenth, but rather neglected by his successor. The horsemen, having reconnoitred the ground, were returning, their observations made, when they perceived certain little groups of soldiers here and there, whom the sergeants were placing at distances at the openings of the enclosures. These were the king's musketeers. Behind them came, upon a splendid horse, the captain, known by his richly embroidered uniform. His hair was gray, his beard turning so. He seemed a little bent, although sitting and handling his horse gracefully. He was looking about him watchfully. "'Monsieur d'Artagnan does not get any older,' said the keeper of the harriers to his colleague the falconer. "'With ten years more to carry than either of us, he has the seat of a young man on horseback.' "'That is true,' replied the falconer. "'I don't see any change in him for the last twenty years.' But this officer was mistaken. D'Artagnan in the last four years had lived a dozen— age had printed its pitiless claws at each angle of his eyes his brow was bald his hands formerly brown and nervous were getting white as if the blood half forgotten them d'artagnan accosted the officers with the shade of affability which distinguishes superiors and received in turn for his courtesy two most respectful bows ah what a lucky chance to see you here monsieur d'artagnan cried the falconer. "'It is rather I who should say that, messieurs,' replied the captain. "'For nowadays the king makes more frequent use of his musketeers than of his falcons.' "'Ah! It is not as it was in the good old times,' sighed the falconer. "'Do you remember, Monsieur d'Artagnan?' when the late king flew the pie in the vineyards beyond Beaugence. Ah, damn, you were not the captain of the musketeers at that time, Monsieur d'Artagnan. And you were nothing but under-corporal of the Tiercelet, replied d'Artagnan, laughing. Never mind that. It was a good time, seeing that it is always a good time when we are young. "'Good day, monsieur, the keeper of the harriers.' "'You do me honor, monsieur le comte,' said the latter. D'Artagnan made no reply. The title of comte had hardly struck him. D'Artagnan had been a comte for years. "'Are you not very much fatigued with the long journey you have taken, monsieur le capitaine?' continued the falconer. It must be full two hundred leagues from hence to Pignerol. Two hundred and sixty to go, and as many to return, said D'Artagnan quietly. And, 
said the falconer. "'Is he well?' "'Who?' asked D'Artagnan. "'Why, poor Monsieur Fouquet,' continued the falconer in a low voice. The keeper of the harriers had prudently withdrawn. "'No,' replied D'Artagnan. "'The poor man frets terribly. He cannot comprehend how imprisonment can be a favor. He says that Parliament absolved him by banishing him, and banishment is, or should be, liberty. He cannot imagine that they had sworn his death, and that to save his life from the claws of Parliament was to be under too much obligation to heaven.' "'Ah, yes, the poor man had a close chance of the scaffold.' replied the falconer it is said that monsieur colbert had given orders to the governor of the bastille and that the execution was ordered enough said d'artagnan pensively and with a view of cutting short the conversation yes said the keeper of the harriers drawing towards them monsieur fouquet is now at pignerol he has richly deserved it. He had the good fortune to be conducted there by you. He robbed the king sufficiently. D'Artagnan launched at the master of the dogs, one of his crossest looks, and said to him, Monsieur, if anyone told me you had eaten your dog's meat, not only would I refuse to believe it, but still more, if you were condemned to the lash or to jail for it, I should pity you, and would not allow people to speak ill of you. And yet, monsieur, honest man as you may be, I assure you that you are not more so than poor Monsieur Fouquet was. After having undergone this sharp rebuke, the keeper of the harriers hung his head and allowed the falconer to get two steps in advance of him nearer to D'Artagnan. He is content said the falconer in a low voice to the musketeer. "'We all know that harriers are in fashion nowadays. If he were a falconer, he would not talk in that way.' D'Artagnan smiled in a melancholy manner at seeing this great political question resolved by the discontent of such humble interest. He for a moment ran over in his mind the glorious existence of the surintendant, the crumbling of his fortunes and the melancholy death that awaited him and to conclude did monsieur fouquet love falconry said he oh passionately monsieur repeated the falconer with an accent of bitter regret and a sigh that was the funeral oration of fouquet d'artagnan allowed the ill-humor of the one and the regret of the other to pass and continued to advance. They could already catch glimpses of the huntsmen at the issue of the wood, the feathers of the outriders passing like shooting stars across the clearings, and the white horses skirting the bosky thickets looking like illuminated apparitions. "'But,' resumed D'Artagnan, "'will the sport last long? Pray, give us a good swift bird, for I am very tired.' Is it a heron or a swan? Both, Monsieur d'Artagnan, said the falconer. But you need not be alarmed. 
the king is not much of a sportsman he does not take the field on his own account he only wishes to amuse the ladies the words to amuse the ladies were so strongly accented they set d'artagnan thinking huh said he looking keenly at the falconer the keeper of the harriers smiled no doubt with a view of making it up with the musketeer oh you may safely laugh said d'artagnan i know nothing of current news i only arrived yesterday after a month's absence i left the court mourning the death of the queen mother the king was not willing to take any amusement after receiving the last sigh of anne of austria but everything comes to an end in this world well then he is no longer sad so much the better and everything begins as well as ends said the keeper with a coarse laugh ha said d'artagnan a second time he burned to know but dignity would not allow him to interrogate people below him there is something beginning then it seems the keeper gave him a significant wink but d'artagnan was unwilling to learn anything from this man shall we see the king early asked he of the falconer at seven o'clock monsieur i shall fly the birds who comes with the king how is madame how is the queen better monsieur has she been ill then monsieur since the last chagrin she suffered her majesty has been unwell what chagrin you need not fancy your news is old i have but just returned it appears that the queen a little neglected since the death of her mother-in-law complained to the king who answered her do i not sleep at home every night madame what more do you expect <laughs> said d'artagnan poor woman she must heartily hate mademoiselle de la valliere oh no not mademoiselle de la valliere replied the falconer who then the blast of a hunting-horn interrupted this conversation it summoned the dogs and the hawks the falconer and his companions set off immediately leaving d'artagnan alone in the midst of the suspended sentence the king appeared at a distance surrounded by ladies and horsemen all the troop advanced in beautiful order at a foot's pace the horns of various sorts animating the dogs and horses there was an animation in the scene a miracle of light of which nothing now can give an idea unless it be the fictitious splendor of a theatric spectacle d'artagnan with an eye a little just a little dimmed by age distinguished behind the group three carriages the first was intended for the queen it was empty d'artagnan who did not see mademoiselle de la valliere by the king's side on looking about for her saw her in the second carriage she was alone with two of her women who seemed as dull as their mistress on the left hand of the king upon a high-spirited horse restrained by a bold and skilful hand shone a lady of most dazzling beauty the king smiled upon her and she smiled upon the king loud laughter followed every word she uttered 
I must know that woman, thought the musketeer. Who can she be? And he stooped toward his friend, the falconer, to whom he addressed the question he had put to himself. The falconer was about to reply when the king, perceiving D'Artagnan, Ah, Comte, said he, you are amongst us once more, then? Why have I not seen you? Sire, replied the captain, because your majesty was asleep when I arrived, and not awake when I resumed my duties this morning. Still the same, said Louis in a loud voice, denoting satisfaction. Take some rest, Comte. I command you to do so. You will dine with me today. A murmur of admiration surrounded D'Artagnan like a caress. Everyone was eager to salute him. Dining with the king was an honor his majesty was not so prodigal of as Henry the Fourth had been. The king passed a few steps in advance, and D'Artagnan found himself in the midst of a fresh group among whom shone Colbert. "'Good day, Monsieur D'Artagnan,' said the minister with marked affability. "'Have you had a pleasant journey?' "'Yes, monsieur,' said D'Artagnan, bowing to the neck of his horse. "'I heard the king invite you to his table for this evening,' continued the minister. "'You will meet an old friend there.' "'An old friend of mine?' asked D'Artagnan, plunging painfully into the dark waves of the past, which had swallowed up for him so many friendships and so many hatreds. "'Monsieur le Duc d'Almeida, who is arriving this morning from Spain.' "'The Duc d'Almeida,' said D'Artagnan, reflecting in vain. "'Here,' cried an old man, white as snow, sitting bent in his carriage, which he caused to be thrown open to make room for the musketeer. "'Heramis!' cried D'Artagnan, struck with profound amazement, and he felt, inert as it was, the thin arm of the old nobleman hanging round his neck. Colbert, after having observed them in silence for a few moments, urged his horse forward and left the two old friends together. "'And so,' said the musketeer, taking Aramis's arm, "'You, the exile, the rebel, are again in France?' "'Ah, and I shall dine with you at the king's table,' said Aramis, smiling. "'Yes. Will you not ask yourself what is the use of fidelity in this world? Stop. Let us allow poor Lavalier's carriage to pass. Look how uneasy she is, how her eyes dim with tears follow the king who is riding on horseback yonder. With whom? With Mademoiselle de Tonnay Charente, now Madame de Montespan, replied Aramis. She is jealous. Is she then deserted? Not quite yet, but it will not be long before she is. They chatted together while following the sport, and Aramis's coachman drove them so cleverly that they arrived at the instant when the falcon, attacking the bird, beat him down and fell upon him. The king alighted, Madame de Montespan followed his example. They were in front of an isolated chapel, 
concealed by huge trees already despoiled of their leaves by the first cutting winds of autumn. Behind this chapel was an enclosure closed by a latticed gate. The falcon had beaten down its prey in the enclosure belonging to this little chapel, and the king was desirous of going in to take the first feather according to custom. The cortege formed a circle round the building and the hedges, too small to receive so many. D'Artagnan held back Aramis by the arm, as he was about, like the rest, to alight from his carriage and in a hoarse, broken voice. "'Do you know, Aramis?' said he, "'whither chance has conducted us?' "'No,' replied the duke. "'Here repose men that we knew well,' said D'Artagnan, greatly agitated. Aramis, without divining anything and with a trembling step, penetrated into the chapel by a little door which D'Artagnan opened for him. "'Where are they buried?' said he. "'There, in the enclosure. "'There is a cross, you see, beneath yon little cypress.' The tree of grief is planted over their tomb. Don't go to it. The king is going that way. The heron has just fallen there. Aramis stopped and concealed himself in the shade. They then saw, without being seen, the pale face of La Valliere, who neglected in her carriage, at first looked on, with a melancholy heart from the door, and then, carried away by jealousy, advanced into the chapel, whence leaning against a pillar she contemplated the king smiling and making signs to madame de montespan to approach as there was nothing to be afraid of madame de montespan complied she took the hand the king held out to her and he plucking out the first feather from the heron which the falconer had strangled placed it in his beautiful companion's hat she smiling in her turn kissed the hand tenderly which made her this present the king grew scarlet with vanity and pleasure. He looked at Madame de Montespan with all the fire of new love. "'What will you give me in exchange?' said he. She broke off a little branch of cypress and offered it to the king, who looked intoxicated with hope. "'Humph!' said Aramis to D'Artagnan. "'The present is but a sad one.' For that cypress shades a tomb. Yes, and the tomb is that of Raoul de Bragelonne, said D'Artagnan aloud. Of Raoul, who sleeps under that cross with his father. A groan resounded. They saw a woman fall fainting to the ground. Mademoiselle de la Valliere had seen all, heard all. Poor woman! muttered d'artagnan as he helped the attendants to carry back to her carriage the lonely lady whose lot henceforth in life was suffering that evening d'artagnan was seated at the king's table near monsieur colbert and monsieur le duc d'almeda the king was very gay he paid a thousand little attentions to the queen a thousand kindnesses to madame seated at his left hand and very sad it might have been supposed that time of calm when the king was wont to watch his mother's eyes for the approval or disapproval of what he had just done. Of mistresses there was no question at this dinner. The king addressed Aramis two or three times, calling him Monsieur l'Ambassadeur, 
which increased the surprise already felt by d'artagnan at seeing his friend the rebel so marvelously well received at court the king on rising from table gave his hand to the queen and made a sign to colbert whose eye was on his master's face colbert took d'artagnan and aramis on one side the king began to chat with his sister whilst monsieur very uneasy entertained the queen with a preoccupied air without ceasing to watch his wife and brother from the corner of his eye the conversation between aramis d'artagnan and colbert turned upon indifferent subjects they spoke of preceding ministers colbert related the successful tricks of mazarin and desired those of richelieu to be related to him d'artagnan could not overcome his surprise at finding this man with his heavy eyebrows and low forehead display so much sound knowledge and cheerful spirits aramis was astonished at the lightness of character which permitted this serious man to retard with advantage the moment for more important conversation to which nobody made any allusion although all three interlocutors felt its imminence it was very plain from the embarrassed appearance of monsieur how much the conversation of the king and madame annoyed him madame's eyes were almost red was she going to complain was she going to expose a little scandal in open court the king took her on one side and in a tone so tender that it must have reminded the princess of the time when she was loved for herself sister said he why do i see tears in those lovely eyes why sire said she monsieur is jealous is he not sister she looked toward monsieur an infallible sign that they were talking about him yes said she listen to me said the king if your friends compromise you it is not monsieur's fault he spoke these words with so much kindness that madame encouraged having borne so many solitary griefs so long was nearly bursting into tears so full was her heart come come dear little sister said the king tell me your griefs on the word of a brother i pity them on the word of a king i will put an end to them she raised her glorious eyes and in a melancholy tone it is not my friends who compromise me said she they are either absent or concealed they have been brought into disgrace with your majesty they so devoted so good so loyal you say this on account of de guiche whom i have exiled at monsieur's desire and who since that unjust exile has endeavored to get himself killed once every day unjust say you sister so unjust but if i had not had the respect mixed with the friendship that i have always entertained for your majesty well well i would have asked my brother charles upon whom i can always the king started what then i would have asked him to have had it represented to you that monsieur and his favorite monsieur le chevalier de lorraine ought not with impunity to constitute themselves the executioners of my honor and my happiness the chevalier de lorraine said the king that dismal fellow 
is my mortal enemy whilst that man lives in my household where monsieur retains him and delegates his power to him i shall be the most miserable woman in the kingdom so said the king slowly you call your brother of england a better friend than i am actions speak for themselves sire and you would prefer going to ask assistance there to my own country said she with pride yes sire you are the grandchild of henry the fourth as well as myself lady cousin and brother-in-law does not that amount pretty well to the title of brother germain then said henrietta act let us form an alliance begin i have you say unjustly exiled de guiche oh yes said she blushing de guiche shall return so far well and now you say that i do wrong in having in your household the chevalier de lorraine who gives monsieur ill advice respecting you remember well what i tell you sire the chevalier de lorraine some day observe if ever i come to a dreadful end i beforehand accuse the chevalier de lorraine he has a spirit that is capable of any crime the chevalier de lorraine shall no longer annoy you i promise you that then that will be a true preliminary of alliance sire i sign but since you have done your part tell me what shall be mine instead of embroiling me with your brother charles you must make him a more intimate friend than ever that is very easy oh not quite so easy as you may suppose for in ordinary friendship people embrace or exercise hospitality and that only costs a kiss or a return profitable expenses but in political friendship ah it's a political friendship is it yes my sister and then instead of embraces and feasts it is soldiers it is soldiers all alive and well equipped that we must serve up to our friends vessels we must offer all armed with cannons and stored with provisions it hence results that we have not always coffers in a fit condition for such friendships ah you are right said madame the coffers of the king of england have been sonorous for some time but you my sister who have so much influence over your brother you can secure more than an ambassador could ever get the promise of to effect that i must go to london my dear brother i have thought so replied the king eagerly and i have said to myself that such a voyage would do your health and spirits good only interrupted madame it is possible i should fail the king of england has dangerous counsellors counsellors do you say precisely if by chance your majesty had any intention i am only supposing so 
of asking Charles II his alliance in a war. A war? Yes. Well, then the king's counsellors, who are in number seven, Mademoiselle Stuart, Mademoiselle Wells, Mademoiselle Gwynne, Miss Orche, Mademoiselle Zunga, Miss Davies, and the proud Countess of Castlemaine, will represent to the king that war costs a great deal of money, that it is better to give balls and suppers at Hampton Court than to equip ships of the line at Portsmouth and Greenwich. And then your negotiations will fail? Oh, those ladies cause all negotiations to fall through which they don't make themselves. Do you know the idea that has struck me, sister? No. Inform me what it is. It is that, searching well around you, you might perhaps find a female counsellor to take with you to your brother, whose eloquence might paralyze the ill-will of the seven others. That is really an idea, sire, and I will search. You will find what you want. I hope so. A pretty ambassadress is necessary. An agreeable face is better than an ugly one, is it not? Most assuredly. An animated, lively, audacious character? Certainly. Nobility, that is, enough to enable her to approach the king without awkwardness. Not too lofty, so as not to trouble herself about the dignity of her race. Very true. And who knows a little English? Mon Dieu! Why, someone, cried Madame, like Mademoiselle de Corral, for instance. Oh, why, yes, said Louis the Fourteenth. You have hit the mark. It is you who have found my sister. I will take her. She will have no cause to complain, I suppose. Oh, no. I will name her Seductrice Plenipotentiaire at once, and will add a dowry to the title. That is well. I fancy you already on your road, my dear little sister. Consoled for all your griefs. I will go on two conditions. The first is that I shall know what I am negotiating about. That is it. The Dutch, you know, insult me daily in their gazettes, and by their republican attitude I do not like republics. That may easily be imagined, sire. I see with pain that these kings of the sea, they call themselves, though, keep trade from France and the Indies, and that their vessels will soon occupy all the ports of Europe. Such a power is too near me, sister." They are your allies, nevertheless. That is why they were wrong in having the medal you have heard of struck, a medal which represents Holland stopping the sun, as Joshua did with this legend. The sun had stopped before me. There is not much fraternity in that, is there? I thought you had forgotten that miserable episode. I never forget anything, sister. And if my true friends, such as your brother Charles, are willing to second me? The princess remained pensively silent. Listen to me. 
there is the empire of the seas to be shared said louis the fourteenth for this partition which england submits to could i not represent the second party as well as the dutch we have mademoiselle de courant to treat that question replied madame your second condition for going if you please sister the consent of monsieur my husband you shall have it then consider me already gone brother on hearing these words louis the fourteenth turned round toward the corner of the room in which d'artagnan colbert and aramis stood and made an affirmative sign to his minister colbert then broke in on the conversation suddenly and said to aramis monsieur l'ambassadeur shall we talk about business d'artagnan immediately withdrew from politeness he directed his steps toward the fireplace within hearing of what the king was about to say to monsieur who evidently uneasy had gone to him the face of the king was animated upon his brow was stamped a strength of will the expression of which already met no further contradiction in france and was soon to meet no more in europe monsieur said the king to his brother i am not pleased with monsieur le chevalier de lorraine you who do him the honor to protect him must advise him to travel for a few months these words fell with the crush of an avalanche upon monsieur who adored his favorite and concentrated all his affections in him in what has this chevalier been inconsiderate enough to displease your majesty cried he darting a furious look at madame i will tell you that when he is gone said the king suavely and also when madame here shall have crossed over into england madame in england murmured monsieur in amazement in a week brother continued the king whilst we will go whither i will shortly tell you and the king turned on his heel smiling in his brother's face to sweeten as it were the bitter draught he had given him during this time colbert was talking with the duc d'almeida monsieur said colbert to aramis this is the moment for us to come to an understanding i have made your peace with the king and i owed that clearly to a man of so much merit but as you have often expressed friendship for me an opportunity presents itself for giving me a proof of it you are besides more a frenchman than a spaniard shall we secure answer me frankly the neutrality of spain if we undertake anything against the united provinces monsieur replied aramis the interest of spain is clear to embroil europe with the provinces would doubtless be our policy but the king of france is an ally of the united provinces you are not ignorant besides that it would infer a maritime war and that france is no state to undertake this with advantage colbert turning round at this moment saw d'artagnan who was seeking some interlocutor during this aside of the king and monsieur he called him at the same time saying in a low voice to aramis may we talk openly with d'artagnan i suppose oh 
"'Certainly,' replied the ambassador. "'We were saying, Monsieur d'Almeida and I,' said Colbert, "'that a conflict with the United Provinces would mean a maritime war.' "'That's evident enough,' replied the musketeer. "'And what do you think of it, Monsieur d'Artagnan?' "'I think that to carry on such a war successfully you must have very large land forces.' "'What did you say?' said Colbert, thinking he had ill understood him. "'Why such a large land army?' said Aramis. "'Because the king will be beaten by sea, if he has not the English with him, and that when beaten by sea he will soon be invaded either by the Dutch in his ports or by the Spaniards by land.' "'And Spain neutral?' asked Aramis. "'Neutral as long as the king shall prove stronger,' rejoined D'Artagnan. Colbert admired that sagacity which never touched a question without enlightening it thoroughly. Aramis smiled, as he had long known that in diplomacy D'Artagnan acknowledged no superior. Colbert, who, like all proud men, dwelt upon his fantasy with a certainty of success, resumed the subject. "'Who told you, Monsieur d'Artagnan, that the king had no navy?' "'Oh, I take no heed of these details,' replied the captain. "'I am but an indifferent sailor. Like all nervous people, I hate the sea. And yet I have an idea that, with ships, France being a seaport with two hundred exits, we might have sailors.' Colbert drew from his pocket a little oblong book divided into two columns. On the first were the names of vessels, on the other the figures recapitulating the number of cannon and men requisite to equip these ships. "'I have had the same idea as you,' said he to D'Artagnan, "'and I have had an account drawn up of the vessels we have altogether. Thirty-five ships.' Thirty-five ships! "'Impossible!' cried D'Artagnan. "'Something like two thousand pieces of cannon,' said Colbert. "'That is what the king possesses at this moment. "'Of five-and-thirty vessels, we can make three squadrons. "'But I must have five. Five! cried Aramis. They will be afloat before the end of the year, gentlemen. The king will have fifty ship of the line. We may venture on a contest with them, may we not? To build vessels, said D'Artagnan, is difficult but possible. As to arming them, how is that to be done? In France there are neither foundries nor military docks. Bah! replied colbert in a bantering tone i have planned all that this year and a half past did you not know it do you know monsieur d'imfreville d'imfreville replied d'artagnan no he is a man i have discovered he has a specialty he is a man of genius he knows how to set men to work it is he who has cast cannon and cut the woods of bourgogne and then monsieur l'ambassadeur 
You may not believe what I am going to tell you, but I have a still further idea. Oh, monsieur, said Aramis civilly, I always believe you. Calculating upon the character of the Dutch, our allies, I said to myself, they are merchants, they are friendly with the king, they will be happy to sell to the king what they fabricate for themselves, then the more we buy. Ah, I must add this, I have Forant. Do you know Forant, d'Artagnan? Colbert, in his warmth, forgot himself. He called the captain simply d'Artagnan, as the king did, but the captain only smiled at it. No, replied he, I do not know him. That is another man I have discovered, with a genius for buying. This Forant has purchased for me three hundred and fifty thousand pounds of iron in balls, two hundred thousand pounds of powder, twelve cargoes of northern timber, matches, grenades, pitch, tar, I know not what, with a saving of seven per cent upon what all those articles would cost me fabricated in France. That is a capital and quaint idea, replied D'Artagnan, to have Dutch cannonballs cast, which will return to the Dutch. Is it not with loss, too? <laughs> and Colbert laughed aloud. He was delighted with his own joke. Still further, added he, these same Dutch are building for the king at this moment six vessels after the model of their best of their name, Destouche. Ah, perhaps you do not know Destouche? No, monsieur. He is a man who has a sure glance to discern. When a ship is launched, what are the defects and qualities of that ship? That is valuable. Observe. Nature is truly whimsical. Well, this Destouche appeared to me to be a man likely to prove useful in marine affairs, and he is superintending the construction of six vessels of seventy-eight guns, which the provinces are building for his majesty. It results from this, my dear Monsieur d'Artagnan, that the king, if he wished to quarrel with the provinces, would have a very pretty fleet. Now, you know better than anybody else if the land army is efficient. D'Artagnan and Aramis looked at each other, wondering at the mysterious labors this man had undertaken in so short a time. Colbert understood them and was touched by this best of flatteries. If we in France were ignorant of what was going on, said D'Artagnan, out of France still less must be known. That is why I told Monsieur l'Ambassadeur, said Colbert, that Spain promising its neutrality, England helping us. If England assists you, said Aramis, I promise the neutrality of Spain. I take you at your word, Colbert hastened to reply with his blunt bonhomie, and apropos of Spain, you have not the golden fleece, Monsieur d'Almeida. I heard the king say the other day that he should like to see you wear the grand cordon of St. Michael. Aramis bowed. Oh, thought D'Artagnan, 
and Porthos is no longer here. What ells of ribbon would there be for him in these largesses? Dear Porthos. Monsieur d'Artagnan, resumed Colbert, between us two you will have, I wager, an inclination to lead your musketeers into Holland. Can you swim? <laughs> and he laughed like a man in high good humor. Like an eel, replied D'Artagnan. Ah, but there are some bitter passages of canals and marshes yonder, Monsieur D'Artagnan, and the best swimmers are sometimes drowned there. It is my profession to die for his majesty, said the musketeer. Only, as it is seldom in war that much water is met with without a little fire, I declare to you beforehand that I will do my best to choose fire. I am getting old. Water freezes me, but fire warms, Monsieur Colbert. And D'Artagnan looked so handsome still in quasi-juvenile strength as he pronounced these words, that Colbert in his turn could not help admiring him. D'Artagnan perceived the effect he had produced. He remembered that the best tradesman is he who fixes a high price upon his goods, when they are valuable. He prepared his price in advance. "'So then,' said Colbert, "'we go into Holland.' "'Yes,' replied D'Artagnan. "'Only?' "'Only,' said Monsieur Colbert. "'Only,' repeated D'Artagnan. "'There lurks in everything the question of interest.' the question of self-love it is a very fine title that of captain of the musketeers but observe this we have now the king's guards and the military household of the king a captain of musketeers ought to command all that and then he would absorb a hundred thousand livres a year for expenses well but do you suppose the king would haggle with you said colbert <laughs> monsieur you have not understood me replied d'artagnan sure of carrying his point i was telling you that i an old captain formerly chief of the king's guard having precedence of the marechaux of france i saw myself one day in the trenches with two other equals the captain of the guards and the colonel commanding the swiss now at no price will i suffer that i have old habits and I will stand or fall by them. Colbert felt this blow, but he was prepared for it. I have been thinking of what you said just now, replied he. About what, monsieur? We were speaking of canals and marshes in which people are drowned. Well? Well, if they are drowned, it is for want of a boat a plank or a stick of a stick however short it may be said d'artagnan exactly said colbert and therefore i never heard of an instance of a marechal of france being drowned d'artagnan became very pale with joy and in a not very firm voice people would be very proud of me in my country said he if I were a marechal of France, but a man must have commanded an expedition in chief to obtain the baton. Monsieur, said Colbert, 
here is in this pocket-book which you will study a plan of campaign you will have to lead a body of troops to carry out in the next spring d'artagnan took the book tremblingly and his fingers meeting those of colbert the minister pressed the hand of the musketeer loyally monsieur said he we had both a revenge to take one over the other i have begun it is now your turn i will do you justice monsieur replied d'artagnan and implore you to tell the king that the first opportunity that shall offer he may depend upon a victory or to behold me dead or both then i will have the fleur-de-lis for your marechal's baton prepared immediately said colbert End of chapter 90, recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.